Well, good morning, dads and um, dads-to-be. I think there's a few of those probably out here as well. It's good to see you guys this morning. And um, boy, this is an intimate group, isn't it? I think there's a whole bunch of fathers doing, um, taking their families on fatherly adventures. And I know we have um, some, even a 50th anniversary, the Prettymans are participating in. And and uh, there's some camping trips going on and all kinds of fun stuff, but we're glad you guys are here. And uh, I'll share with you, hey, Aaron, can you lower this just a bit, I think? Thank you. A, uh, a few months ago, I had the opportunity um, you guys might have even seen it in the bulletin that we participated in a men's conference and John and I were able to speak there. And uh, it, the, the, the topic was on the, the question of pain and suffering in this world. And I know that's not a big sell to get people in for a message, but um, it's an important topic. And, and uh, I think in part I, I was asked to be there kind of as, as, maybe as in a little bit of an example, not so much maybe as a theological expert on the topic, but it did send me into the Word. And, um, and, and for me, and I know most of you know, our, our, daughter, our oldest daughter, Madison, uh, went home to be with the Lord last October. And, uh, you know, as I, as I dove into the message, it really became... It really became personal, and uh, it was a challenge then, and I'm suddenly realizing it's going to be a challenge now, but that's okay. It's a good story. Well, as I began studying and preparing, not surprisingly, looking at, at, at messages on, on popular sites and blog posts and that sort of thing, as you can imagine, there is no lack of, of, of uh, this topic. And it's because it's universal, isn't it? I mean, that, that's what we experience in this life. And underneath all these practical questions, I think one of the underlying things is, well, some of the underlying things is how do we get through it? How do we best live with pain and suffering? And perhaps the big nagging question, why does God allow pain and suffering in our life. And for the unbelieving world, this is really a tool in their hand. I mean, they use it as a cudgel against the belief in God that if there is an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-benevolent, wise God, well, certainly he would remove all pain from my life, wouldn't he? That's how the world sees God. And as I began looking at um, this topic and preparing for it, the text that I kept coming back to was Romans 8, 18 to 25. And I think it gives us a really good framework for the issue of pain and suffering in this world. So let me read that for, for you. You can join along with me in your Bibles, Romans 8, 18 through 25. 
Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the, cha- in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This text, it's for the weary Christian. It's for the believer burdened by the sorrows of his life, that through it, Mago once said, sometimes wonders if they can go on or perhaps struggles more deeply with the question, why would God allow this to happen to me? And I confess these aren't academic struggles for us. These are, these are thoughts and issues that have, have, have been with our family for some time. Suffering is real, and we all experience it, don't we? As I said, on October 22nd, 2021, our oldest daughter, Maddie, went home to be with the Lord. And perhaps just to set a context for our experience, many of you, I mean, we know this date, and and so many were praying with us in those last days, and and aware of her struggles even in the last year or two. But just to take it back and put the whole picture together, um, it began long before this for us. And, you know, Maddie was just typical little fireball, little kid, precocious, and, and um, you know, I'll forever remember the first time we tried to get her into uh, a little ballet class when she was... Four, five, two. Boy, that was a mistake. <laughs> and all those cushions, you know, that are meant to protect the dancers as they do their, their performance and their twists and their curls, that was for her to just bounce off the walls as she, as she ran around. She had so much energy. And uh, up until seven, you know, lived a perfectly normal, healthy life. And, um, and one day came home and had, had difficulty walking, her, her foot hurt, and, and, and um, that became aggravated. And uh, it was finally determined that she had had a spider bite on the top of her foot, um, which turned into a, a really bad um, infection and progressed to um, 
necrotizing and fasciitis. And if you, if you know that term, it's what uh, Jim Hansen died of. It's a bacterial infection that once it gets into that uh, fatty layer between the muscles where there's very little blood flow to fight off infection and it can really travel. And um, they worked on that locally and, and, and uh, you know, I remember that day where the, the local doctor, the surgeon that was trying to help her, they had uh, um, opened up her leg from her ankle to basically her, her groin down to the bone to, to try and pack it with antibiotic um, gauze to, to fight the infection. And I, and I remember the surgeon just saying, you know, it's moving. It looks like it's moving into her abdomen. And once it's there, there really isn't any hope. So off she goes to a, to a um, helicopter and up to Stanford and... and uh, um, goes into surgery, and, and we were just so impressed by the doctors. And um, I can't remember how long the surgery was, but maybe a couple hours. And it was the head of uh, pediatric surgery, comes out just with a grin on his face and, and, and said, you know, it's okay, you know, we, we, we got it, it's under control, and... and um, and we were just so relieved. And I remember going back to the hospital room. We were there a, a little bit of time, and all of a sudden the door opened up. In comes a guy, a little, little less personal, with a lab coat on, introduces himself as coming from oncology. I'm actually not that bright. My wife immediately knew what that meant and, and uh, proceeds to tell us that, you know, in, the, in this whole process, they discovered that she had um, leukemia acute myelogenous leukemia, and a particular one that, as we came to find out, was, especially back then, really hard to treat. An incredibly small amount of children ever survived it. And, um, but there we were. We'll take the next step. And, and uh, so from there, she, she went through chemotherapy, um, a brief period of remission, and then it came back somewhat expectedly. And then we took the next step, which was a bone marrow transplant. And, and um, had this incredible experience with a godly man in Texas who had registered for the National Bone Marrow, bone marrow Registry because his best friend, a fellow deacon at his church, had, had contracted uh, adult leukemia. So they had done a bone marrow drive. Everybody had registered, gotten typed, and so forth. So he ended up on the registry. Unfortunately, his, his friend, after a year, passed away, didn't make it. But then suddenly he gets a call from the registry. Would you still like to be a donor? You know, you're a perfect match for a seven-year-old little girl in California. He ends up being a donor. So Maddie goes through a bone marrow transplant, and the, they warn you going into it that, that the, it's one of those things that the, the treatment is almost as bad as the disease and, and deleterious effects of full-body radiation, which is 
required to kill off all your cells prior to being infused with the new bone marrow. And uh, uh, the intense chemotherapy and so forth are, are, are just hard on the body. But praise the Lord, she got through it. And after three months of, uh, um, of uh, isolation up at the Ronald McDonald house, those do exist and it was great. And uh, what a wild experience. Uh, the interesting thing is that, that uh, literally on the day that Maddie had finished her last treatment of chemotherapy prior to um, the, the relapse portion, Caitlin was born. And uh, what an experience. Maddie in the Lucille Packard's cancer ward, Katie and Colleen down in the maternity ward. Isn't that interesting? The same day. And I'll never, I'll never we tried to hunt for the picture. Um, it's got to be in the closet somewhere, but there's a picture of about 12 oncology nurses surrounding Maddie's bed, and, and um, they brought in Katie, and Maddie's holding Katie, seven year or eight-year-old at this time, Maddie holding her newborn sister. Well, the, the following years, um, they, they got better, um, but they weren't without difficulty. There, there was... Um, Rejection, you know, bone marrow transplant is different than an organ transplant in that what you're actually transplanting is your immune system, someone else's immune system into your body. So that immune system sees the entire body that it's going into as a potential threat. So rejection can come out essentially anywhere, and it and it did in her lungs and eyes and. She had a form of tuberculosis um, that she had to get through that caused quite a bit of damage to her lungs. And, uh, and then the Lord's just so good. By the high school years, she was doing much better and, 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 and really had a um, you know, fairly normal high school period. And then off to uh, California State University, Monterey Bay, and so excited to be a college student. And um, into her third year, um, we got a call from her that uh, she, she just couldn't walk across campus anymore. And, and uh, uh, couldn't catch her breath. And so took her in, checked that out, and it turned out she had already, she was in congestive heart failure. And this is part of that, um, deleterious effects of the of the radiation chemotherapy that they warned us that by the time she was hitting her 20s it could very well be um, deeply affecting her and then other things started to happen and and um, she uh, had developed liver cancer and, and liver tumors and uh, and then one burst. So a, essentially an open vessel in, in the interior of the liver. It's a very vascular organ, almost impossible to operate on. 
And, and um, boy, it was right out of, you know, one of those hospital shows. Um, at one point, eight, ten doctors, you know, they had done the whole code blue thing and people rushing in and out and, and, and so many bells and whistles, you can't understand what's going on. And, and you know, over that sort of fog of, of sound, I heard, you know, we're losing her. And praise the Lord, amazingly, she got through that. And, and they, they, you know, did a MacGyver on her <laughs> and, and somehow stopped the bleeding. Everybody was just amazed. But that had its effects as well. And, and she went into heart, liver, and kidney failure. That's when she... At that point, she needed uh, full-time dialysis. And, uh, you know, the preceding years are just, just uh, challenges. And, and, you know, I tell this not to overwhelm you or, or certainly not to, for you to have pity on us, but I just want to give you the picture of... of um, being being consumed by and and life all of life essentially dominated by pain and suffering in some way I mean, it was just never out of our our window we're just always dealing with it and we can look back and we can see now God's hand in all of it. And even as I share this, you know, you know, the the one of the the things that happened, I, it didn't really surprise me. But after I spoke at the men's conference afterwards, I probably had at least a half dozen guys that came up to me and sat down with me, sometimes in tears. And, and, and shared their story. And, and I'm sure it's the same in this room. Everybody has a story because it's part of our life. It's part of this life. Everybody has a burden. So we want to we wanna make sense of it. We want to make sense of it. We want to glorify God through it. How do we do that? I think we, we have to start at the beginning, the biblical record, Adam and Eve. Perfect fellowship with their creator, with their God, walking in the garden. There is no death, there is no disease, there is no suffering. And in an instant, through their rebellion in the garden, creation falls into corruption. And we are separated from God. And then the curse. Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust 
you shall return. That was the consequence of rebellion against God. And praise God, you know, think about it. God in eternity, perfect, holy, righteous, creates something perfect, holy, righteous. And it rebels against him. Why did God keep dealing with us? Why did he keep dealing with us? He didn't have to. He could have said, well, this didn't work. But he had an eternal, perfect plan. And it, and it was one that would remove us from the corruption that we had begun. It's a challenging contrast in this text that, that, um, that Paul gives us. The very first verse, Paul says, keeping in mind even Paul's experience, if you know his life, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That's what God wants to accomplish in the midst of our rebellion. I remember um, when, I, when I was first working on this, it, 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 this, this idea of, of um, suffering and glory just struck me as, as this, uh, there, there was this conflict going on that was so obvious. When I was, uh, uh, most of my professional life, I've, prior to coming into the ministry, I've, I've been in publishing of one sort or another, two-dimensional design and that sort of thing, and, and layouts, and, and you'd have different elements on the page, and, and they were related, but they needed to be kept separate, and, and you would try and find that balance where they, they, they somehow fit together. And if they got too close, there was, there was a confluence, there was a tension there. But if you put them in the right um, proportions and positioning, you felt like you had achieved a design. You could feel it, you could see it. Paul tells us, God has subjected his entire creation to futility to sickness, disease, and death. Yet, Paul says, God is going to reveal his glory. Do you see that, that conflict, that tension that's there? How is God doing that? Paul tells us, in this present time, we will suffer. And we see it in the world. Massive, horrific suffering. I mean, I think about people that a year ago were shopping and farming and their entire city is now leveled. War suddenly rushed into their life. We know in our own experience, we see it all around us. Frankly, if you outlive your youth and avoid accident or tragedy, you're going to eventually face the decline of age. 
your heart, your liver, your kidneys, they're all gonna go. Maybe you won't make it that long, but instead get a diagnosis of cancer or an interoperable tumor or a million other ways that the Lord can take us. Time suffering can seem a permanent part of life. And amazingly, Paul tells us in this verse, it's all going to be worth it. It's all going to be worth it. Romans 8.18, again, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the tension. Suffering on one side, glory on the other. The question for us and our struggle is do we see the design in it? Is it just paint thrown up on the wall, random, chaotic, meaningless? Or do we see meaning, purpose, design? Do we see a designer? Paul tells us there is a designer. There is a purpose, and there is meaning. He goes on, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. We had no choice in the matter, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You know, I find comfort in that Paul doesn't try and sugarcoat it. Paul doesn't try and rescue God. He doesn't say, well, God may have made the world, but he must have stepped back and is kind of a hands-off sort of God. And it's a trap many have fallen into. You've heard of the age of enlightenment. Prior to this period, almost no one on the planet denied the existence of God. We might have had our different interpretations of that God, but no one denied that there was a God. Then, in, through God's common grace, the floodgates of discovery opened. Men began learning more and more. And it bred arrogance. And we began demanding two things. We, we began demanding that we must understand everything God is doing and that we will only accept what we can see. Unfortunately, the first demand is absolutely beyond us. Job tells us, chapter 26, 14, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power who can understand it? Of the second demand that we will accept only what we can see, the psalmist, I think in looking back to the Red Sea, he says, your ways through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. God's ways are not our ways, and he is ever working in unseen ways. You know, for our family, looking back at the beginning of our journey, I, I will confess, I did not see any of it. Not in the beginning. I knew enough to say a prayer in desperation, but I did not see 
God in it. I could not conceive the idea that God had a purpose. In my seven-year-old, seven-year-old's cancer, much less her pain and suffering. Was he busy with more important things? Was he apathetic to her suffering? Was he doing something or was he doing something in my daughter's life, in my life? But I confess, I gave it little thought. The truth is, not only did I fail to be the spiritual leader of our family, but I failed to honor and acknowledge God. But you know what? I didn't surprise God. I'm open and naked to him. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His purposes, his mercy, his kindness is independent of my actions. And I didn't know it then, but God was at work at my life and he was deeply at work in the life of my entire family. I think we get it confused we are so consumed by, by this world that we, we, we just confuse our priorities. I mean, if we were to ask ourselves, what is our greatest need? Is it, is it a career? Is it accomplishment, a house, food, health, a disease-free life, the avoidance of pain and suffering? Our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. That's our greatest need. Our greatest need is salvation and to be rescued from the wrath of God. It's interesting how Paul begins this letter. He paints a picture of our condition in Romans 1.18, he begins, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. These, these verses are speaking to all of us. But the Lord is patient, amen? The truth is God tolerates evil because he is patient with us. In Peter's second letter, he puts it so well. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now I see the faithfulness of God in all of it. I can say for a fact 
Without Maddie going through all she went through and what it awakened in me, I wouldn't be a Christian today. So the surprise isn't my faithlessness. The surprise is that even then God was at work in my life and in the life of our family to supply our greatest need, salvation. Or as Paul puts it in our text, why he has subjected all creation to futility because of hope. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, was, who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So here's the question to us. And I think this is what Paul would ask us. Does this make sense to us? Do we consider with Paul that the sufferings of this present time are worth it? Is it worth the glory that is to be revealed to you? Sort of in this whole season, I had another experience I, I, I thought I would share with you. I probably grew up with best friends. I, I had a best friend and, and um, in, in, you know, when looking back as I kind of ticked through the events, it was kind of crazy. We met um, in high school, got our first job together, bagging groceries, you know, next to each other at the grocery store. We, uh, we uh, went to college together, we double dated, he ended up being my best man, I was his best man. Um, I could go on and on with so many life markers that we experienced. But, you know, like uh, many best friends, you get into your career, you move to different parts of the country, and you kind of lose contact, and, and, and quite a few years went by. We moved back to California and I found him on Facebook. We reconnected and, and started communicating pretty rarely. And, and, uh, um, the, um, and, and, and we had become Christians together. That's probably the most important thing. We went off to uh, college camp together and were baptized together. And... Um, so, you know, when, when, when we reconnected, much of our conversation was, was about our walk with the Lord or lack of walk with the Lord, and, and, uh, and, and, it, and it was really a sweet time. I mean, we, we just encouraged one another, and, and, and it's one of those relationships that you have no problem being 100% transparent about everything. Uh, you know, like he knew everything about me. I knew everything about him. And, and you know, we didn't pretend with one another. And, and um, the, but he was struggling. And, and, and uh, he, he, um, he was always a, uh, a, um, I don't know how to put it, um, Somebody described him as a real straight arrow. 
You know, he, he in, which is the funny thing about our relationship because I was always the goofball and he was the guy who was, no, that's not the responsible thing to do. You know, you need to go this direction, you need to go that direction. And, uh, and um, in this season of his life, um, you know, what he shared with me is, is he, he was just consumed with worry about money and the house and living in Southern California and um, the lifestyle and um, and uh, so that was a big part of you know what what we tried to talk through and 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 into you know prioritizing Christ and and um, growing in, in our love for God rather than the things of this world and that was his struggle. And I remember um, all of a sudden I get a, a, a text from him and he said, hey, Michael, um, remember that heart murmur I had? And we had tried out for the fire department and together and, and uh, he ended up having a heart murmur. And when he couldn't do it, I dropped out of it too. What's the use of doing something without your best friend? And uh, so I said, yeah. He said, yeah, my doctor said it's time to take care of it. So I'm going to go in. I have to have open heart surgery and it should go well. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll um, shoot you a note in a couple days. I said, okay, great. Be praying for you. A couple days go by and I didn't hear from him. Three or four days go by, I didn't hear from him. And then all of a sudden I did get a text and he said, um, Hey, surgery went great. Um, doctor, think you know everything went well there. And he said, uh, "But you'll never believe it. They found a brain tumor, and it turned out to be a geoblastoma. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Basically, an inoperable tumor, about the size of an egg, right in the center of his brain. And and um, I was just crushed." So over the preceding weeks, you know what happened? I can tell you his focus on Christ was like a laser. And we talked about the Lord. We talked about eternity. We talked about our families. Um, he shared with me, his, though, though he, had, he had raised his kids you know, essentially in the church, sent them to a good Christian school. He said, you know, I never shared the gospel with my son. That was his greatest sorrow. And, and uh, within just a, a, a couple of weeks, I, I could just see the transformation. And, and he was so full of joy and expectancy for what God had for him. It was, it, was, it was remarkable. And I'll never forget when he said, you know, I feel like I won the lottery. He said, if this hadn't happened, I don't know where I would be. And there he was with a brain tumor, but an absolute confidence in his, in his eternal salvation.
I can tell you, well, he did tell me, it's worth it. The suffering of this world, it's worth it. And I don't want to minimize suffering and just write it off. I know the weight of it and the sorrow of it can literally take your breath away. And the text says here, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning. We groan together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of creation is groaning. No one has escaped. You know, in some ways that's comforting. We, we can feel at times like we're being picked on or this is only happening to me. But it's quite literally true that this is the condition of the human, the human condition. My hope here is that if you call yourself a Christian and your time comes in the ambulance, a car wreck, the operating table, when you are struck with some wretched disease or your organs begin to fail, your faith will not fail. Because when the time does come, a head knowledge of God causes all things to work together for good just will not carry the day. A head knowledge of God, no matter how biblical, will not sustain us. If your faith is not rooted in a personal knowledge, love, and experience with the living God, I fear that faith will fail you. Paul says the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. So the question is, how do you, how do you view your suffering? Are they pains leading to a glorious beginning? Or do they merely reflect an impotent and weak God? Or worse, an evil God? Think of it in this terms. I think Paul's illustration of pains of childbirth is helpful. Think of two hospital wards. You have a terminal cancer ward where you have suffering and pain without hope. And at the other end, you have a maternity ward where indeed there is suffering and pain, but with hope, hope of a glorious new birth. Both are in the hospital. Both elicit two very different responses, despair or hope and joy. The maternity ward can be messy. There's blood, there's pain, but oh, there's glory. Dads, we know that. There's glory. Madison, she was incredibly thoughtful if I'm going to do a dad boast thing, even as a teenager. She was always looking for ways to encourage others, always thought others amazingly had it worse off than herself. She had a very simple faith, but a profound childlike faith. 
In preparing for Maddie's memorial service, the Lord gave me a great gift when I, when I found her um, baptism testimony. And I, I just wanted to share just a bit of that for you. In speaking of her cancer and, and, and personal experience of suffering, she said, how could someone go through so much without knowing there is a greater presence at work? Some people think going through cancer and everything else is punishment for my sins. I don't see it that way. It is because Jesus died for me to take away my sins, to save me. That he was able to walk right beside me and my family. There is a reason for everything. Jesus knows that reason. And he is the reason. I chose to put my complete and total faith in him to allow things to happen the way he wants them to happen, the way they should happen. And she said that only a few months after learning she had been turned down for a um, potential heart transplant. No bitterness, no self-pity, just peaceful acceptance, trusting in God's purpose and plan for her. I share that just to say, you know, that's really not normal. How does that happen? I think it happens, it's a faith that's born of fire. Peter talked about it. It's a work of God in a young life, revealing his glory and power through much pain and suffering. First Peter says, in this you rejoice, but now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how much comfort that gives me. Many experience her share of suffering and futility in this life, but I can say with certainty because she told me so, it's all worth it. Well, when we look at this text, and we talked about it in the beginning, that Paul says he considers the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's still the in-between time, isn't there? How do, we, how do we get through that? How do we get through that? This section of the text, Paul concludes by saying, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Challenge, one of the challenges to us, I think, is that, that this life puts so many counterfeit hopes before us. And it's so easy to become fixated on the hope of this life, whether it be success in career, financial success, or, or just, just a long, productive life. When the realities of life hit, that's when despair hits. Our hope is not distant enough. We need to fix our, our hope on eternal hope. Or as Paul says here, an unseen hope. And Paul expressed this personally, and I know you know this verse, if we go back to Philippians 3, 7, Paul, in basically saying everything is worth it for receiving Christ, in Philippians 3, 7 says, but whatever gain I had, whatever benefit I had in this life, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's hanging on to a hope unseen, Hebrews tell us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know, we, we knew at some point it was, it was clear that what the Lord had for Maddie was not healing. We didn't, we didn't point her towards, you know, the next operation or the next medical solution to put our hope in. Yes, we pursued every option. But more and more, to me, especially as a dad, it, it was clear that my task was to build in, in her an eternal hope, something outside of the pain and suffering that she really never escaped. And I look back at verse 23, where Paul says, well, reading from 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Her poor little body had experienced so much and and I would share regularly with her the various scriptures that spoke of the glorified body that God is going to give us. It would be silly to give her hope in overcoming the things that she was overcoming. Yes, we believe that God could give her a miracle. But that just didn't seem to be God's plan for her. But there is true hope in what we cannot see. Paul tells us real hope, 
God's hope is worth waiting for. How do we know if we're, we're waiting for it? How do we know if that's our hope? One of the clues he says in the text, at the very end, verse 25, Paul says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There's something about the incomparable glory and joy and expectation of our eternal state in in perfect fellowship, sinlessness for all eternity with our God, with our creator, that you can wait a few years. Can't you? Isn't that fine? God has promised us so much. But if I live life burdened, if I'm impatient, if I'm disillusioned, that's a real check on what my hope is, isn't it? We need to anchor our hope in God's eternal promises. I love Paul's encouragement to the Corinthian church, and I'll, I'll close us with this almost thinking the same thoughts. Paul says, so brethren, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you pray with me? Father, thank you for our eternal hope. Father, thank you that you, you intend to, to rescue us from corruption rather than simply mitigating the consequences of our corruption. Father, you don't intend to make life in this world better so that we enjoy the now. Father, you encourage us to have hearts built for eternity with eyes set on your glory. Teach us, Father, to have a light touch on this world, Father God. Teach us to have our hope solidly, eternally with you. And we thank you, Father God, that through it all, you graciously, tenderly sustain us through it all. I thank you for how you Sustain Maddie through so much. I thank you that her testimony spoke so clearly of your faithfulness. We will give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.